Today is the 2nd of September, 2014, and this is episode 141. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Argentina is back in the news with the possibility of an imminent default on the sovereign debt of the country. This has been a saga that's unfolded over several months now as they've been in discussions with creditors and under a court ruling to negotiate with creditors in a mediation in order to find a way to satisfy their creditors. And as far as I can tell, the last Part of that was a ruling by the court forcing them into mediation and no one showed up at the mediation meetings <laughs> and then uh, the deadline passed yesterday and presumably Argentina is now in default I don't know if it's official yet but uh, you know essentially that's been it's been heading in that direction for quite a while now and this would be I believe the third default of Argentina in the last 30 years a uh, terrible situation financial situation and for argentinians the result of this has been another spike in the exchange rate so now the official exchange rate is about one third of what the unofficial black market exchange rate is which i believe passed 12 pesos recently um, so for example if you visit argentina and you have hard dollars if you go to one of the official government endorsed licensed kiosks or to a bank to change your money you're going to get about five pesos per dollar but if you go to the person standing right next to the official kiosk then you will get about 12 to 13 pesos per dollar so a massive discrepancy between the official and the black market rate which means also that for local argentinians their purchasing power is demolished their everything that they buy from abroad any any goods that are coming from abroad are horrifically expensive and now all of that is just going to get worse a really harrowing situation but it's for argentinians this isn't even a surprise or something new it's it's a repeat of of the same story that's happened uh, already a couple of times in this generation well so the question that i always come back to when we look at examples like this is why is this the best option for the various parties that are involved you know watching the ongoing uh, sovereign default has been interesting because it seems like everyone should want a resolution but in practice that's not actually what happens and it seems like most of the the creditors are on board with some kind of reduction except for some that aren't and that's kind of messing up the whole thing so i mean this this reminds me a lot of undischargeable debts just in in any sort of situation whenever you have undischargeable debts you have this kind of problem where both the debtor and the debt holder um, are just in a bad situation and, and there doesn't seem to be a way out. So, I mean, why do we keep finding ourselves in this situation? Well, you've got to look at this from a different perspective, which is if you're a creditor to Argentina's sovereign debt, that means that you have an asset on your balance sheet, which is the repayment of that debt. So, so you bank on that. Essentially, the balance sheet of these organizations has uh, an asset which is the repayment of the debt a long-term asset and if you accept a default agreement that uh, forces you to revalue that asset at a new level 
And that means accepting a smaller payment in the future. But for many of the organizations that Argentina owes money to, their balance sheet is in a pretty bad situation too. So if they accept a default, that forces them to recalculate things like their currency reserves, if they're an investment bank or uh, that has uh, you know, uh, some regulatory arrangement with the government where they have to keep certain assets in reserve. Well, now their asset list has grown smaller, and that means they need to keep other assets in reserve to make up for the difference. And if their balance sheet is really, really bad, that may tip them over into a position where they start defaulting on their own obligations as a result of this. And it essentially, it causes a ripple effect through the economy. And th- that's essentially what we saw with Lehman Brothers was that, you know, once one organization finally gives up and says, you know, we simply can't respond to these debt obligations, then all of the other organizations that were expecting those payments start rolling over. And that contagion, as it was called at the time, spreads through the economy. Part of the reason there are holdouts in the Argentina default is that they simply can't accept uh, a smaller payment or make a deal because that would be a very bad outcome for them. And, uh, you know, a default isn't any better, but they're holding out because they're hoping that somehow Argentina will manage to get someone to come to their rescue uh, and bail them out uh, in time for them to balance all the all their assets. And, uh, you know, as long as that hope remains, that maybe there's going to be a deal with the IMF and an injection of capital or somebody else, then there'll be holdouts. And, and, and that's really what happens in any situation. So uh, unfortunately, nobody came to the rescue of Argentina. As a result, I think today, Standard & Poor, one of the rating agencies rated Argentina as uh, in default. So it's better to have the funds be unavailable, but still technically owed to them rather than making it real and making it something that could actually be used if a guy wanted to use it, but lowering the value and then unbalancing this, this very precarious debt situation that, you know, a lot of these creditors themselves are also in. Right. Is that right? Yeah. So essentially everybody is up to their neck in, in debt and they have a certain amount of debt coming in that, that could push them underwater. And at the same time, they've got a certain number of assets that are keeping them like a flotation device above water. So if you give up one of your flotation devices, you sink. And if you accept that one of the debts that's owed to you is no longer there, then that forces you to restructure your own balance sheets. And that has a ripple effect. It's, it's basically like a number of people all, all trying to tread water and, and one of them starts going under and pulls the others with them. That's the situation. As we've seen this cascade effect, there's basically no room in the global economy for, for these kinds of failures because everybody is up to there is in debt and, and doesn't have any room to absorb any shock. There, the system itself has become incredibly fragile. You know, and this is not surprising because, you know, after the last crisis, none of the structural problems were really fixed. The, the banks that were too big became even bigger. Their debt loads increased. Uh, and all of the national governments that started printing money to cover up the problems, uh, simply escalated their own debt situation so that now they have no room 
even as the economic crisis continues completely unabated uh, six years in and, you know, in a, in a very precarious situation. The next time we have a crisis, no one can bail anyone out. Well, so, but with that sort of thing in mind, uh, wouldn't that, I mean, like any potential rescue is just more of the same, you know, it's another bailout, which means more borrowed money that again, these, these people who are doing the bailing out are probably borrowing themselves from other people who are already borrowing it. So it seems like at best, what can, what can happen here is like the bag holder changes a little bit. And this round of creditors to Argentina gets bailed out, but it comes by bringing in a whole new swath. Yeah. And, you know, you might think that that strategy doesn't work. And it certainly doesn't. In the long run, it it can't possibly work. The bag doesn't go away just because you shifted it down the line. Surprisingly, at the same time, it has worked. Uh, And the way it's worked is that six years after the crisis in 2008, we've pumped uh, $2 trillion into the U.S. economy in terms of debt, at least. The big banks have gotten even bigger. The debt musical chairs has played for six years and no one collapsed. Of of course, now everyone's in an even more precarious situation than in 2008. And so the slightest shock to the system could send all of the dominoes tumbling. But, you know, it worked in terms of postponing the reckoning by six years. And of course, at the same time, making that reckoning even bigger. It means that the next crisis will be much bigger than the previous crisis uh, because it's been delayed for six years. One of the reasons why cryptocurrency is appealing to a lot of people initially is because they're not attached to the existing systems, whatever that system may be. And so a country like Argentina seems like as it continues down this rabbit hole and doesn't seem to be getting what it considers fair treatment, is there a reason to continue participating in this sort of system? I mean, like, is is a solution like Bitcoin or perhaps a cryptocurrency that's created, you know, specifically for a country or by a country, is does that offer some solutions here? Well, not on a national level. And I think that's that's the critical issue here, which is on a national level, there is no solution other than accepting reality, which is the the country is bankrupt. Isn't that what a default is attempting to do? It's attempting to reckon what what is perceived, what is owed with what is available, what is real. So isn't Argentina through this action trying to bring reality back into the situation? And it's their creditors, it seems like, who who are the ones that do not benefit from that at all? Well, uh, yes and no, because uh, sovereign default has very, very serious repercussions. Essentially, what happens next is that Argentina's interest rates for uh, creating new debt for bonds skyrocket. So Argentina can no longer borrow money on the international markets because their bonds won't sell unless enormous and uh, enormous to a point where uh, the the country can't service its debt at all, which it already can't. So what happens next is that the government runs out of money. So then any services provided by the government essentially stop. That means uh, no pensions for pensioners. That means no public services. Uh, that means any anything that's related to public services will cease to function. Government offices close. 
you know, copyright offices, patent offices, uh, land registry, uh, loan systems, um, government administration, the military, the schools where there are public schools, the public hospitals, um, all of the pensioners, all of those things basically stop because there's no money for any of that. Um, and, you know, those kinds of consequences end up hitting the the poorest and neediest in a society harder than everybody else because they have no uh, disposable income or savings to weather such a blow. So suddenly grandma doesn't get her pension, um, but doesn't have any other means to survive. And you end up with people um, becoming um, homeless and starving and literally not having food. So th- this isn't just a theoretical rebalancing of a balance sheet. This basically means that a whole, you know, a very large number of people are immediately affected by these situations. Now, you can't fix that with cryptocurrencies at the national level because the underlying problem is borrowing beyond the means of the country. And at the same time, you know, a form of parasitic capitalism that um, sucks countries dry and enriches a very small sliver of the population the big players who have done this to many other countries are not are quite present in Argentina's story as well. But you can change this for individuals. The difference is that in the past, when these things happen, the the country takes all of its population hostage. Uh, this time around, however, there will be a very, 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 very small percentage of the population that will be able to retain their wealth in the form of either hard currency that they've smuggled into the country or cryptocurrency that they don't need to smuggle. They can build on their own computers. And so what that means is there's now a relief valve, at least on an individual basis, that allows those people to escape the consequences of the national default and opt out of the national economy in some way and and essentially create a gray economy that operates on different currencies, as you see in these situations. I mean, really, it's just a money layer for the internet is really just the, the cleanest way to think about it. So yeah, in that way, it lets anybody opt essentially out, um, grant, uh, you know, as much as they want of their local currency or their local situation and opt into the one that's shared by the entire internet using base. But I do think it seems like there are a lot of problems, um, that come up because of the way that we handle money, uh, that countries handle money. And a lot of it has to do with irresponsibility, but a lot of that is because it's in, it's because it's all about global trade and because it's actually, you know, our credit systems enable that. They enable uh, countries to spend beyond their means. That's, that's what I come back to is that it seems like if the problem is that countries can't responsibly use the funds that they actually have, then cryptocurrency might present a kind of transparency layer um, where you could have trust in otherwise currencies that you wouldn't be able to trust because they're being you know administered by people who can do just whatever they want. But if you have programmatic money, if you have money where the fundamentals can be you know set at the beginning and then cannot be changed by the bureaucrats, then maybe that's a way out of the problem. Well, I think in that general. what this uh, also reveals is a system of uh, perverse incentives that cause governments to respond to exactly the opposite incentive of what the people within that country need or want. So uh, let's take the scenario. Let's look at this from two different perspectives. One perspective is an Argentinian saver, and the other perspective is the Argentinian treasury, right? So as far as the Argentinian treasury is concerned, 
uh, when you have debt uh, denominated in uh, pesos so via the exchange rate in U.S. dollars, inflation is good. Inflation allows you to pay less in the future than you are paying now in terms of debt. It allows you to dilute the debt, erode the debt. Um, so that, you know, if you, if you owe a million pesos today and that million pesos is worth half as much in the future and your company, your country's GDP remains the same, uh, then you're able to service that debt with half as much, uh, in a tax base than you would otherwise, right? So your interest payments, your debt, uh, servicing payments are essentially reduced in half because your currency is worth half what it was. Uh, and you dilute the debt. So the treasury is incentivized effectively, as are the big banks and anybody who holds large amounts of debt. And, and, you know, that's a, that's a given in, in large global economies is that they're debt based. So anyone who holds large amounts of debt wants to see the value of money eroded over time, which allows the, the cost of the debt to be eroded over time. Now I'll turn it around and look at it from the perspective of a saver. That means that their savings are being destroyed. So in order for the government to service its debt, it's destroying the value of the currency by printing more currency. And that destroys the value of the currency in everybody's savings accounts, uh, but also in all of the assets that they own, uh, their homes, their businesses, their capital equipment, everything that hasn't yet been capitalized and reused in a productive way in the economy essentially starts eroding because of inflation. So you have this perverse situation where governments are incentivized to destroy the value of money through inflation against the needs of their citizens who have savings, who lose the value of their savings. And and that's why, you know, putting the power control over inflation in the hands of governments has always been a bad idea. The idea of independent central banks is, is to avoid exactly that, to create a layer of essentially separation between the elected officials who may have weird incentives and the central banks to make them independent. The problem, of course, is that they're independent of the elected officials, but they're not independent of the bank members that make them up. So they end up being even more corrupt than, than the elected officials, and there's no recourse for citizens to fix that. Uh, they become outside the democratic process. I don't get to vote for the Federal Reserve chairman, um, and effectively, neither do my elected officials. Effectively, the Federal Reserve is a private institution run by private banks that get to make the decisions, and they make the decisions that serve them most. Since all of these institutions have enormous amounts of debt outstanding, is to dilute the value of money by printing endless money, especially since they receive the money that they print, <laughs> and and you know that destroys the currency. It's a pretty good gig if you could get it. It's a pretty good gig if you can get it. Right. Uh, the the best way to rob a bank nowadays is not to walk in the front door uh, armed to the teeth. It's to get a banking license and buy a bank, and then you can rob it blind, and and you get invited to Davos, you know, to rub elbows with the bigwigs, and pretend that you're a global financier of uh, gravitas and serious opinions, uh, also known in my mind at least as a criminal, and <laughs> you know, the biggest criminals walking this planet wear very expensive suits and never get prosecuted. 
And, and that's basically the reality of the debt-based central bank system. Uh, cryptocurrencies offer an alternative. Predictable money supply means that you can't have that scenario unfolding because no one can print money. Now, so on that same note, the Argentinian currency is pegged to the dollar, at least officially. And at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how, you know, you mentioned that there, you know, there, you can buy it from the window or you can buy it from the guy, you know, standing next to the window and the rates are different. People have chosen to peg to the dollar because it's the largest currency. It's the reserve currency. It's seen as being very stable. And yet it has this highly inflationary policy. So by pegging to it, you still can print money. I wonder, what do you think about the idea of, of a country pegging to Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency? Bitcoin seems like the obvious choice. You know, would that have, you know, what would it do pegging a currency well, to a deflationary currency? The problem is currency? that pegging is an arbitrary decision that you can only make in the face of a market that accepts that decision. If you try to peg a currency to a value that doesn't represent the actual value of the currency, what you're going to do is you're going to create an enormous flow of money from one currency to the other uh, because of arbitrage. Uh, so, you know, if, for example, take the peso that's, that's sold for five pesos a dollar at the store and then 12 pesos a dollar at the other. Well, as you can see, that creates an incentive to buy dollars at the official rate by selling five pesos and buying a dollar and then sell them at the unofficial rate and get 12 pesos back. And you just made a two and a half times return on your investment with no risk. So the problem is that you can do this, but the only way that you're not fighting the tide is if you do it in a way that actually reflects reality as opposed to reflects the value that you would like it to be. So if you say this penny equals $100 and I'll trade it to anybody, somebody probably is going to come along and say, sure, here's some pennies, give me hundreds of dollars. But that doesn't. But you're, you've, you've identified the value wrong. Right. Exactly. And and the only way that can work is by creating barriers to the currency flows. So, for example, when you go into Argentina, uh, when I visited last November, I remember one thing that was very interesting was the line at customs. I don't know if you've remembered when you travel abroad and you come back into the U.S. It takes a very long time to get your luggage and a very long time to get through the line where they check your passports because they're very concerned about who gets into the country. But then once you get to customs, they do a relatively cursory check. They're checking for a few types of contraband, but mostly in the U.S. they're checking for agricultural pests and things like that. So you don't bring uh, some kind of pest that's not present in the American North American continent into the country and then cause, you know, some horrible disease to, to spread uh, among fruit trees or something like that, which has happened many times in the past. So you, you can see just by glancing at the lines and the length of the lines, you can see where the country's priorities lie, right, in terms of what they're allowing through the border. So I visited Argentina in November and the passport check took a matter of a minute or so. And then I got to customs where I stood in line for about 45 minutes. And during those 45 minutes, every bag was scanned. Um, every third bag was opened up uh, by customs officials. And there were signs everywhere that reminded everyone of the very, very strict limits on bringing foreign currency into the country. 
it was clear from that exercise that the primary focus of the entire border apparatus was preventing hard currency from entering the country. And the reason for that is very simple, because if you bring hard currency into the country, you go to an exchange point, you sell it in the black market at 12 pesos, and then you go buy, buy back the double the amount at the official exchange store. So you can profit from that flow of money. So the more money that goes into the country or leaves the country, the more that flow gets accelerated. Uh, foreign currency reserves flying out of the country because they, they want to convert them. Flying out. I think that's a really important point to, to reference here too, because Venezuela is another interesting example that's had currency controls on. And one of the ways that they enact that is they make it so you're only allowed to buy foreign currency at the official rate if that rate, um, rather if you're uh, like leaving the country or doing something like that, doing some sort of travel. And so what happened for a while in Venezuela, and this also happened in uh, Iceland because they have similar capital controls is that people would essentially just buy tickets and then take their tickets so that they could get their their uh, dollars at the official rate and then wouldn't go anywhere or would go somewhere just with credit cards buy a bunch of currency with cash advances essentially and then bring it back with them in their bags because it, that was the most effective thing you could do in order to profit basically it's more right. effective than having a job it creates all of these weird incentives that cause massive misallocations of capital, all, uh, you know, essentially for the purpose of adjusting through all of these other means, the discrepancy between the actual purchasing power value of the currency and what the pegged rate is. Uh, you deny reality and reality tries to intrude through a million little channels, all of which uh, kind of distort the picture. And what that does is it does tremendous damage to the economy because pricing is the means by which resources get allocated to the most efficient investment that generates the best return. And if you distort that signal, what it does is it misallocates capital on a massive scale. So people do things like, for example, in Argentina, where people buy three or four brand new cars, drive them off the dealership lot. And the moment they drive them off, they double in value, which shouldn't happen. And the reason it happens is because every other form of capital preservation is destroyed. So hard assets become the only form of capital reservation. So people buy washing machines and cars, put them onto tarps and store them in their gardens. And that's their savings account. Uh, and that's an insane situation that, that is created purely out of these perverse incentives. Think of it this way. It's like you have two containers full of water, right? And you connect them with a pipe. And then you take one container and you drop it three feet to a lower level. And you say, well, I still think they're at the same level. Well, you may think that, but the water flow will think otherwise, right? <laughs> it's going to start siphoning from the one container to the other. And the only way to try and stop that is to put a dam in the way and say, no, I'm not going to let that flow happen. But, you know, in this particular case, you're talking about economies. So there are a million little pipes connecting the two containers. And so if you plug one up, it flows through the others. And eventually it starts amplifying the flows through, through channels that should never have flow through them in that direction. And you get all of this weird, weird effect happening. So that's what pegging is. And you can't really do that. Uh, for very long because the, the damaging effects just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it destroys the value of the economy, but it also causes all kinds of economic activity to grind to a halt and all kinds of non-productive economic activity, which are just different forms of arbitrage to start accelerating until eventually, you know, it's all fake. 
you know, by the way, this is happening right here in the U.S. right now. So what happens when the Federal Reserve issues just a bit more than a trillion and a half dollars through the quantitative easing program since 2009 and gives that to banks to allocate uh, banks that have already have significant problems on their balance sheets? Well, they start allocating it in ways that inflates their balance sheets in order to avoid default. And they do that chasing yield, essentially. So the, the economy's productivity hasn't increased, but you've just poured a whole bunch of money into the economy. The same structural problems exist, but now you've got this enormous flow of money flowing into the economy on a monthly basis, given to the same actors who misallocated capital before, and you allow them to misallocate capital again. What happens in then is that enormous amount of liquidity starts sloshing around the economy. First, it chases the stock market to record highs, until you're investing in all kinds of companies that have no business, no plan, no product, no revenue, but you're investing just because everybody else is investing in them too, because they have to put their money somewhere. And then, you know, you start reinflating the real estate bubble. And then we've seen the student loan bubble being inflated. We've seen now the auto loan bubble being inflated. You can go out and get a car lease and you can get car financing. With 0% down, no credit checks, no background checks, uh, essentially subprime auto loans have exploded. And why have they exploded? Because a giant flow of money was looking for somewhere to sit. And since there wasn't anything productive in the economy for it to be invested in, it flows into and starts inflating every single asset bubble there is. Now, right now, you know, you look at what hedge funds are doing and what investment companies are doing, they've run out of places to allocate that capital. So all of that money sloshing around inflated all of these bubbles. And at some point soon, they're going to start bursting. And when they do, now you have an even bigger wave of defaults caused by this. So essentially to fix the one problem, which was risk taking and misallocation of capital by banks that because of the repeal of Glass-Steagall, because of many other effects that caused financialization to be more profitable than investment in productive activities. And in order to fix that, we put a fire hose of a trillion dollars into their hands and just gave them a new flood of money, which they went and misallocated even more perversely than before into an even bigger casino game of high-frequency trading and algorithmic trading and uh, front-running transactions into a fake stock market that has nothing to do with people's actual jobs and employment and productivity. Well, guess what's going to happen next? Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> Bingo, yeah. No bankers are going to go to jail. <laughs> All of this so, is perfectly legal. Um, but of course, that, the middle class actually is, is kind of... Yeah, right. No, okay. So, yes, that that's completely right. I think that you're completely right, and I think that this is obvious at this point. And so the question that I always come back to with all of this stuff is can such a system that has behaved in such a way even save itself? I mean, can it can it do anything at this point or is it just we're just kind of waiting for for this this train wreck to keep playing out and finally really go off the tracks? Well, the problem is that it's accelerating, right? So when it does go off the tracks, the crash is going to be even more spectacular than the previous round. Um, so essentially, we've signed up for an even bigger mess this time around six years later than we had in 2008. And that's going to hurt a lot of people. The whole point of 
a free market is the idea that unproductive activities fail quickly, fail soon, fail early and fail cheap so that their ashes can become fertilizer for the next round of companies. Uh, and if you prevent them from failing, just like allowing a forest to build up by preventing all forest fires, eventually you have a massive conflagration that burns everything to the ground and turns the ground into glass. And then it doesn't matter if there's fertilizer because the ground is glass and nothing can grow there for the next 15 years. So, you know, that's really what's happening in the economy here. In order to prevent some small fires, we created bigger ones. And when the bigger ones started burning out of control, we put those out and prevented even bigger ones. And now we've got a tinderbox. Thanks for listening to episode 141 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam Levine and music was provided by General Fuzz. This episode was sponsored by CryptoKit.com and the magic word is outage. That's O-U-T-A-G-E. Outage, as in power outage, which was how I spent my morning. Oh, the joys of country living. See you next time.